Hopefully you'll remember last week as we discussed what is the will of God. We got through a good chunk of the, of the lesson, about halfway through these points. As we look at kind of a, a word search, a, a textual search in the New Testament and a couple of Old Testament scriptures too, looking at the, the will of God. Because it's very interesting for us to try and understand God. It's very interesting for us and difficult really at times for us to understand the way his mind operates because we just don't fathom those things. God mind, God's mind, uh, God operates in ways that we don't physically understand because we are more physical creatures. He is spiritual. So we've got to somehow change our mindset so that we go from thinking more physical to thinking more spiritual. It's a whole other level of thinking. Uh, it's a whole other world, so to speak. Uh, when you really get down to it. There are things that are important on the physical level that are not as important on the spiritual level. And I think most of us can understand those things. Death, for example, is pretty finite in the physical world, right? When, when you're dead, you're dead. I mean, I'm sorry. Um, in the spiritual world, death is not such a big deal. Unless it's a spiritual death, I guess. But I'm talking physical death. The death of the body is not that big of a deal. Why? Because honestly, it allows you to begin that next phase in your spiritual journey, possibly. And that would be the eternal life with God in heaven eternally, forever, uh, out of this physical world and transform into that spiritual world. And so you got, it's kind of hard. It's, it's something for us to really try to wrap our minds around and really try to understand God's will is on a whole other playing field than the way we operate on each and every day of our life. Now, as we look through the, the general principles and, and the starting points of this lesson, as we talked about what God's will is and can we determine God's will, do we know what God's will is? We went through these first five points and uh, we'll pick up on, on point six this morning. But real quickly in review, of course, point one, we can know God's will. There's multiple scriptures about knowing the will of God and also obeying the will of God. How can you obey something if you can't know it? Uh, it's like mandating that my child obey me however she doesn't know what she's supposed to do uh, it just is it makes no sense logically speaking so in order for us to obey the will of God we've got to be able to know the will of God and so we can know the will of God number two point we talked about we can do the will of God there are certain things that we are able to accomplish that we can obey that we can follow after uh, those commandments of God those things which God has in place in life for us to follow his will and so we're able to do his will. Now, specifically, as we get into some of the scriptures, some of the scriptures specifically talk about, hey, this is the will of God. One of the things that is the will of God is salvation. It is salvation. And we talked last week, and I'm sorry, I didn't have time to do my, my wonderful diagram I talked about last week or my graphic talking about kind of this big will of God, so to speak, this big overwhelming umbrella will of God that you see. But that's really what this boils down to as being the salvation of God. That is the overwhelming will of God is that all men were to be saved, that all men were coming back to reconciliation with God as it was in the very beginning when all things were created, all things were good, all things were perfect. That's the, the overwhelming will of God is that everything go back to the way it used to be. That's that salvation factor there. And so everything you see God's will pointing to throughout scriptures is really pointing to that overwhelming big will of God, if you want to call it such. Uh, of God reconciling us with him and us being back purified, us back being uh, forgiven, us back being uh, perfect in his eyes. And so that's the overwhelming will of God, that big will of God. Then you think about the other ways uh, that kind of lead toward the salvation factor. It's sanctification. 
It's one of the things that Paul specifically says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is that the will of God is sanctification. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? If we're going toward that road to purity, if we're going toward that road to perfection and reconciliation, sanctification is an intense part of that, right? We've got to be able to be set apart. We've got to be perfect and pure. So that's why the will of God is that we are sanctified. We are set apart. We are peculiar. We don't always like to be peculiar, do we? (laughs) Um, I remember back in high school, which I try to forget those days as much as I can, but I remember back in high school that the pressure that you have not to be different. I mean, that's the pressure that you have. This world and everybody around us wants us to be like them. They want us to be like the popular group or like the the most popular thing that's going on. And we get pulled and swayed and, and pushed in certain directions well, God tells us as Christians what his will is for us is to be sanctified. That literally means set apart. That really means we're not like everybody else. We're different. And we're different from the world specifically in that we are trying to be pure, unspotted, unblemished. Also, we see in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 where we stopped last week in our lesson there is that the will of God is thanksgiving. It's that we have a life living full of thanks. And that's where we, we, we don't moan, we don't groan, we don't gripe, we don't complain, we don't worry about all those things. All those things are contrary to thanksgiving. And if we are truly following the will of God, the will of God is thanksgiving. That we have a thankful life and a thankful existence as we live each and every day of our life. Look at number, uh, point number six here in this um, this lesson that I've been able to, to try and ferret out from the Bible. Uh, looking at point six is that uh, the will of God is... My PowerPoint's not cooperating. Yeah, it's, I know what it is. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm more concerned about PowerPoint. The will of God is service. The will of God is service. Look real quickly, and I don't know why this isn't working, but we'll see... Uh, if it picks up in a second. But uh, the will of God is service. You've got your handouts, thankfully, so you can just follow along on there. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verses 3 through 5. In the context of this, of course, is Paul talking about the giving and the support of those who are in need of help, uh, of assistance. And what Paul says, Therefore they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. I think this is a very interesting passage here talking about uh, the aspect of service and how Christians should be servants uh, or slaves in some respect too. The, the same word is kind of used interchangeably in this passage in Ephesians chapter 6. Contextually here, Paul is talking to those who are actually servants of masters, specifically there in those days. Christians who were servants of their masters. And what he says there I think is applicable to all Christians because we are all servants of God. We are all servants of a master that is much greater than us. But look here the reflection and the attitude uh, talking about the will of God in this relationship. Ephesians chapter 6, 5 through 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ... Doing the will of God from the heart. Wow. 
Now, I say it's applicable, and it specifically says right in here why this is applicable to us, even though we may not be a slave, we, we may not be some servant, so to speak. I think you can parallel this to our working relationships in the workforce today as well, that same type of uh, um, you know, relationship with regard to uh, obeying an order or doing what you're told. It's kind of seen there. But you see here it says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart. Why? As you would Christ. It goes on to say there that you don't do it because you're trying to be an eye pleaser or just show people that you're a goody-goody or you're a yes man. It, that's not the motivation or the reasoning why you're doing the best that you can do. Why you're giving your faithful servants and diligence there to the one that you're called to. Or you're obligated to. You're doing it, why? Because you're a servant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. The will of God is a service-filled heart. The will of God wants us to be servants to others, to put our own interests below those of others. Exalt their interests, exalt their needs. Look out for those of others more so than those needs of your own. Now, I think if you think this echoes, obviously, this passage here echoes multiple other passages we've seen in the New Testament talking about being a servant to other people and dealing with this big overall concept of loving one another as we love ourselves. And Paul himself uh, emphasizes in many of his gospel, I mean, in many of his epistle accounts, is that we as Christians should look after the, what is best for others instead of what is wanted in our own selves. The will of God pushes and prods and encourages and desires purposes that we be servants. We have an obligation not just to God, to be his servant and then to follow after the things that he wants us to do, but really and truly we are to serve one another in every aspect of our life. That's what God wants. That's what God purposes. That's what God wills in our lives. So part of the will of God is that the will of God is that we are servants uh, in this life. It is service. It is also active. And I, this is where we want to hit a little bit of an aside as we get going down here. And, and you'll see in your handouts, there's a little arrow pointing out to the left there, kind of talking about the providence of God. But the, the will of God is not something that sits idly. It's not something that is, is um, not able to be um, a part or active in our lives. Uh, the will of God is active. It, it is running. It is involved. It is a part of our lives today. And you see in the scriptures, multiple scriptures that talk about God working and being a part of us and, and being a part of the life around us. Look with me real quickly at, in Romans chapter 8, verse 27. Uh, it says there, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It's going to come together as we keep reading these scriptures, I think. Romans chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Flip back there if you want to. Romans chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 reads this. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And look over, Romans chapter 15 Verses 30 through 32. 
Romans 15, verses 30 through 32. I love hearing the pages of the Bible's turn, by the way. I love it. Uh, y'all check me. Uh, that's part of our, I think, our due diligence as Christians. Y'all make sure that what, what we're reading here is together and, and it's true. But look, Romans 15, verses 30 through 32. says there, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Why? So that, again, that word so, I love so. It's kind of like a therefore. It's kind of like, hey, this is the reason behind it. Why is Paul wanting these prayers? Why is he wanting to be delivered uh, from Judea? So that by God's will, by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. First Peter, flip over there. There's two verses in First Peter I want to read. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. We'll start with that. Peter says, Therefore it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then over, flip over the page of the next chapter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will... And trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The idea of God's will being actively involved in our lives comes about especially as we think about our day-to-day decisions and choices and, and the things that we have to make as Christians living in this world of sin. We, we've got to think about what decision is best for us in our lives. And even further, if, if most of us are, are being conscientiously focused on that which is spiritual, the next question we're going to ask is, which one is going to be the best choice that God wants me to do in life? Where does God want me to lead? Where does God want me to go? What decision does God want me to do? And so we start thinking, uh, how is God's role played into this? It reminds me, of course, of the passage over in James, uh, where we talk about the fact that uh, James 4, verses 13 through 16 in James 4, y'all flip over there with me. This is kind of the, the ramifications that we see. James 4 uh, is a, and it's a verse a lot of us have talked about before, about being worried about today or tomorrow, those kind of things, and, and what we're going to do, what we're going to be involved in. And Verse 13 says, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and, and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your own arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It gets a little deeper, doesn't it, when we apply God's will maybe to our daily decision making. And the daily lives that we live. Now, I think what you see in James chapter 4 is an admonition to those of us who may try and put the focus on us in our lives. Uh, there, there becomes a, a, an improper emphasis on the decisions that we make as though we are the ones who control our own destiny, which I guess in some senses we do. But that we are the all-powerful, that we are the one who the focus should be on and not others and not on God. And the idea and concept that, that we don't focus on God and what God wants and what God will allow in life becomes sinful. In fact, if you look at that last verse in chapter 4, 
Verse 17, it says, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. I put in my Bible right there the sin of omission. Because sometimes we know what God's will is. And we choose not to do it. The focus becomes on our lives and on ourselves instead of on those things which God wants, which God has revealed to us that he desires. Instead of being thankful, we're being whiny and complaining. Obviously, contrary to the will of God, we see directly in Scripture it talks about the will of God is thanksgiving. And if we are being whining and we are complaining and we're doing those things which are contrary to God's will, then obviously we find ourselves in a very precarious or precocious position It shouldn't be, hey, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to see that, and I'm going to go visit here, and I'm going to buy that. If you think about that phrasing, if you think about that emphasis, where is the emphasis on those statements? I, 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 me, me, my. Instead of you, you. Instead of God, others. Obviously, our focus is very important on how we live out our lives. Now, throw into all this the providence of God. <laughs> I haven't even stepped in the providence just yet. But providence of God could, could take almost a, probably a quarter length of study. Uh, half of these things I'm trying to cram in a lot of these classes here. And I told Brother Verlo this a couple weeks ago. I'm trying to cram stuff in here uh, that really you could take a much longer time and analyze and look at. Providence of God is one of those things where, first of all, the word providence of God is never used in Scripture. Um, I think that's very interesting to, to think about. We, we throw it out there all the time about God's providence and God's providence and God's providence. And ironically, it's never really specifically talked about. Indirectly, it's talked about all the time. Uh, you think about in Genesis. I, I love the, 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 the passage in Genesis where Joseph there is confronting his brothers. You remember this? At the very end there of, of his time in Egypt, Joseph, or, or really at, at the, the end of them being clueless of who he was, they come back to him. Remember, they come back to him. They beg for mercy. They beg for forgiveness because um, that, that cup was found in Benjamin's bag. And, you know, all this kind of stuff comes out. And he reveals himself to his brothers. And he says... You know, what you intended for wrong, God intended for good. Now think about that. The volumes that you could get talking about how God watches over providentially those who are faithful to him. It happened throughout Joseph's life, actually. You got a bunch of different examples of Joseph. And what's interesting is throughout that life, people's bad decisions, people's bad choices, even... The, the laws of nature that ran contrary to those times, like the big famine that happened there in the land, God used those things to bring about glory, honor, and to help bring about Joseph's ability to stand up for the people of Israel and honestly perpetuate their existence and, and overall scheme of, of God's overall plan of, by the way, redemption. <laughs> Again, you think about that. Uh, God's big will, of course, is that we are ultimately forgiven. We have that salvation. The, the preservation of Israel through all those years, that remnant of Israel, was all a part of that huge overall scheme of redemption that God had in plan uh, with his big will, if you want to call it that, in our lives. 
providence. Think about Esther. Esther is a great example of the providence of God. In fact, as you go throughout that book and you read about how Esther was placed there in a place of responsibility, Mordecai even tells her, you were, you know, perhaps you were put in this place for such a reason as this or such a time as this. And we see what Esther was able to bring about, the preservation of her people. You know, Haman wanted to kill them all. He wanted to annihilate them. But what did Esther do? He stood up, went to the king, and, and said, King, have mercy. This is what the, the plan is. I ask you to put it aside, please, and save the people. You know, there's an there's a article that I put in your handout. I don't want to read the whole thing, but Brother Wayne Jackson did a, a great job. And this is adapted from an article that he did on God's will and providence. And I want to read at least the first paragraph here to you because I, th- I think it's important. I think on your handout, it's on the inside left uh, of that. Let me make sure I'm right about that. Yeah, inside left of there, God's will and providence. And, and read with me if you want to, or just listen to this first paragraph that Brother Wayne uh, said. And, and I think Brother Jackson does a, a wonderful job kind of exemplifying what the providence of God is. It says, The concept of God's providential work is a huge consideration when discussing how God's will affects everyday life. Providence is the activity of God as accomplished through law. In providence, Jehovah manipulates his own laws for the accomplishment of his ultimate purpose. God respects man's free will, and he will never overpower our freedom of choice in the use of providential activity. Nevertheless, the Bible clearly affirms divine activity in the providential mode. It is a process that we simply cannot explain from our limited vantage point. We accept it because of our confidence and the credibility of the biblical record. And one example here he points out is one that I don't really always think about is the the example of Hannah. Consider the story of example of Hannah to illustrate uh, the providential working of God. Uh, When Hannah prayed for a son, the Lord heard her prayer and answered it. He did so, however, providentially. Uh, she conceived only after her husband knew her, which is a biblical euphemism for a sexual intercourse or sexual union between two people. And so what you see is the prayer of Hannah was, was prayed, of course, was heard by God, and God responded to that. God could have miraculously said, okay, poof, Hannah, you're pregnant. I mean, he could have just thwarted all the natural laws. He could have done something miraculously, supernaturally, if you want to use that term, and answered Hannah's prayers in that form and fashion. That's not what he did. In fact, what God did is he allowed providence to take a role. His providential working and activity allowed Hannah to become pregnant after she and her husband had had sexual intercourse. And so he allowed that natural ability to be fulfilled and providentially answered her prayer. Unquestionably, is what Brother Jackson says here, providence was implemented and heaven was guiding certain events. You see other instances in the Bible, of course, and he alludes to this later on in that article and the, the part that I quote there of, of other times where uh, the, the forces of the universe are being controlled. And, and of course, the, the Bible uh, alludes to the fact in Hebrews chapter, I think it's two or three, Hebrews 1, I'm sorry, verse 3, that the, the Godhead, the, 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 that God is actually holding the, up the entire world by the word of his power, is the phrase used in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. And you, you go on and look at the Bible at, at the, the man, manipulation or the control. I don't like manipulation much because it almost in, in, 
indicates the fact that he changes our, our thinking and our minds. And I think Brother Jackson had it right is that he doesn't change our free will. But in essence, what he allows is our free will and our choices that we make to ultimately go down the road where he wants them to go. He allows those things to take place. He allows us to make whatever choice we want to make. But then God's going to use those choices, use those decisions to the best of his ability to bring about his will and what he wants to, to be accomplished. Uh, there are other biblical examples, and I'm going to throw these out to you. You've got them in your hand out there in that article that he wrote. But there are other many biblical examples where, where Jehovah used forces and or creatures of nature for the accomplishment of his will. Almost kind of a supernatural guidance, but he allowed them to do the working, and it wasn't necessarily God doing the working. Uh, you think back in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 13, um, there is a passage there talking about, um, and I think, I can't remember if this was the... Um, I think it's Abraham. Hold on. Yeah, this is the ram. Genesis chapter 22, verse 13. Of course, we know the story of God telling Abraham to go and sacrifice his one only son, Isaac. Uh, In verse 13, as, as after Abraham had stretched out his hand to kill his son, verse 12, God stops him. And says, don't stretch out your son, your hand any longer against your son. And, um, you know, fear God. I know you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then all of a sudden, verse 13, there's a rustling in the bushes behind him. And what's there? A ram caught in the bushes. Now, does that mean God miraculously placed that lamb there in the bushes? I, I can't answer that question necessarily. But what I do know is God used that ram to bring about the fulfillment of what his promise was to Abraham. And he would always provide for him. Abraham knew it. God showed it. He allowed nature to bring it about. Numbers chapter 11, verse 31 is another good example. And Numbers chapter 11 is the, I think, um, the manna it is. And Numbers chapter 11, verse 31, uh, there went forth a wind. Again, this is not necessarily a creature or an animal, but God, uh, it says, there went, uh, went forth a wind from the Lord. And so the Lord caused wind to blow, it brought in quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp and about two cubits deep in the surface of the ground. I mean, amazing to think about this concept, (laughs) that God caused the wind to blow and that wind blew blew in quail to the point that it stacked up two foot high (laughs) all around the camp for the people to go out and get food to eat. God, again, promised his people he'd take care of them. He brought about the the fulfillment of that promise by allowing things in nature to actually attribute and contribute to that fulfillment of that. Uh, A couple other ones. 1 Kings 13, uh, verse 24 and following. Elijah, if you think there, Elijah was fed by the ravens. uh, Caused the ravens to bring in food uh, to feed him. And one of my favorite examples, uh, because I I seem to be losing my hair in my older years here, but 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 and 24 Probably a little bit little known unless you've studied in depth 2 Kings, but you got to love this. 2 Kings chapter 2, there's a, a young prophet that was sent by God to do something, and, and he was specifically told not to stop and eat. Uh, an older prophet came out and enticed him after he had, he had done this wonderful works and enticed him because he wanted to come over to his house and eat. And, and verses 23 and 24, you see the aftermath of that because um, he had been told not to do these things. Um, and it says, uh, I'm sorry, I got these mixed up. That's 1 Kings 17. 2 Kings 2 is, is the one I like. And this has to do with Elisha. Um, y'all go back. That 
First uh, Kings 17 was that example I was just telling you. Uh, what happens is uh, uh, a lion kills the, 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 the young prophet because he disobeyed God. Change your mind here. Second Kings chapter 2, 23 and 24. Elisha, who succeeded Elijah, obviously, uh, was commissioned, of course, and had done some of these great signs and wonders before the people. Um, he actually purified the water so that uh, the people wouldn't get sick. Verse 23, he went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. <laughs> That's why I like this. Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. Uh, and when he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And then two female bears came out from the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. Wow. <laughs> Allowing those that were natural, those things in nature to take it and run its course. But God also obviously uh, used uh, the forces of the creatures of nature to accomplish his will. Here, of course, and there's a big discussion of why did he do this to these kids uh, the, he did it to prove a point to the parents is what it boiled down to. to. To show the parents that they needed to quit mocking the Lord because by mocking Elisha, not necessarily because he's bald, but they just mocked him. They were mocking the Lord. And the Lord brought about the accomplishment of his purpose and his goal, his providential plan uh, to, to show them and prove to them a point. You know, providence of God is very interesting. And I think we've got to be cautious about providence. Um, because in all reality, we don't know God's providential workings probably when they occur, if you want to be honest. I think we can sometimes speculate, and we'll get to, well, I'm going to have to rush through the, the end of this, but hopefully we'll get to, and you'll see those points to consider when you're thinking about what is the will of God. One of those things is looking for opening and closed doors, open and closed doors in your life. And, and obviously some of those things may indicate that God's providential path may not be through this door or through that window, you know, it may be that it goes another direction, another way, because those avenues may be closed to you. So you may be able to try and decipher some of the providential workings of God, but we've got to be cautious. We do not know the mind of God intimately to the point where we know exactly what path he wants us to take every decision-making choice. In fact, two different paths may be just as well and fine for him. Why? Because God can take... Any kind of lemons we give out to him and make lemonade, he can. That's what God can do. We make bad, boneheaded decisions and choices all the time. And he still allows those to be to the good and bring about good things for us and for others. We can make good choices. They may not be the best choice sometimes, but a good choice can lead down the road to the point where God can use us and use that decision to bring about his will and his ultimately uh, what he wants done in both our lives and in the overall scheme. Again, knowing his will is very difficult sometimes. But we can know it is active, it is involved, it is ongoing, and his will is going to be watching over us as long as we're faithful. And as long as we try and structure our will to go after him, and I think that ultimately gets to the root of this, this class, honestly, uh, when we look at God's will and his providence. Um, Eight and nine, real quickly, I want to throw this out real quick to you. But God's will is not death or evil. And I think that's important for us to understand. Matthew chapter 18, verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. God's will is not death. God does not desire any to what? Perish but that all should come 
forever and eternal life with Him. They, they, want him to, they want us to come to repentance, to change our lives so we don't experience death. God does not desire death. God also does not desire foolishness. And you see that in, verse, in the, the ninth point here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The will of God is that we shut the foolish people's mouths up. So it's not foolishness. Now I say these two things because it's important, I think, for us to understand. Sometimes we try to attribute the will of God to things that we should never begin to attribute them to. Too often do I hear in the religious world that it's the will of God that someone may have perished, or it may have been the will of God that this occurred, or, and it was very negative and a very evil and a bad thing. God does never, God never desires or purposes or wills that anyone should necessarily die. That's not his overall will. That's what we get into, and by the way, next week's lesson is why does God let bad things happen to good people? It's going to get into a little bit of that as we go on and think about it. God's overall will, of course, think about it, go back. Overall will is what? Salvation, sanctification, thanksgiving, everything pointing the way to salvation so that we are reconciled with God. That's what God's will is. That's what God's will is. Not that we should die. But now sometimes, though, he is able to use death to bring about the points and the principles. He does not will or purpose or want death and evil and suffering. George. True. Yes, yes, you're correct. I'm not saying he's against death, period. I'm, I'm, I'm more attributing to the fact that he's going to cause death. That, that's his whole goal and focus is to go out of there and, and actually cause people to die or to bring about that kind of death. George, you're, you're 100% right, though. You cannot have salvation... And ultimately, eternal life without death on this earth. You're correct. And so God's will ultimately, I guess, God does will that we all die and go to him forever. He wants us to leave. He may not will, really wish we die. He just wants us to be reunited with him. So some of us, or down the road, may not die. They may, you know, but he wants that reunion. And so you're right. That necessitates us leaving this earth behind. Correct. Um, but I think what it goes down to is that his will is not a purposeful, vindictive type of will necessarily uh, overall. And again, I'm talking, thinking the broad picture because there are some things that God has done in the past that is actually very pointedly, some people would perceive as being evil, but they're not evil. They're punishment. Okay, you cannot equate punishment with evil. Okay, and if we start getting on that avenue, we're going to have a whole other ball of... of uh, can of worms, I guess is a better way to say it, to open up and, and to get into. But punishment, it does not equate to, um, punishment does not equate in the real world uh, or in our world to God's will. I mean, punishment does equate, but punishment and evil and death, those things, um, uh, it's, it's different. Because he, he, he sometimes does use those things. But you look at this passage here, like in the Matthew passage here. He's talking about these little children. And, and he does not desire one child to die. That's not his desire. But now if a child were to die, would he be able to use that maybe for the overall big will of things? Yeah, I think so. Because he's able to use those decisions and those results to bring about his overall purpose. But you just kind of think about the evil and, and the, the bad things that occur around in our world. Um, God does not necessarily purpose or want those things to happen. And if you really think about it, he didn't want them to happen from the very beginning. It's because of man's decisions that they even entered into this world. 
and, and were bring brought about. And so you see that in the passage. It's also not foolishness. And I, I think sometimes we start talking about, oh, is, is, you know, what's the will of God that, I, you know, should I go to this baseball game or not? That's just foolish. You know, and, and I, I think it's a little foolish sometimes. And we can get some arguments, I guess, as to whether or not someone wins a game or not. Who cares if you win a ball game or not? Now, I think it's great to pray that everybody's safe and, and doesn't get hurt. And, you know, everybody plays with a good attitude and everybody has good sportsmanship. But you start saying, saying God, I, I, pray to, I pray to you that the Cardinals win today. You know, I'm a huge Cardinals fan. Does God's will have anything to do with who wins a ball game? Probably not. I think that's foolishness. That's foolishness. And I think we've got to be cautious about talking about God's will in things that are foolish in, in nature and around us. Uh, because God's will is much more deep, much more important, much more involved, much more active than those little trivial matters that we may have in there. Todd Clippert, a friend of mine, and actually he, he writes sometimes, and, and this is actually a quote that I got off of an article that he had done or an answer, a response to a question, but he wrote this, Prayer changes things and God works in the lives of men. However, it is difficult, if not impossible, to immediately point to any specific event and say, this is the providence of God. And older... Um, Wiser preacher friend once said, always wait at least 15 years before crediting God with anything. And I like that. What he meant was that sometimes we give God credit for things that end up hurting us in the long run when our own poor decisions are the cause of the difficulty. Think about this. When we start talking about, oh, it's God's will to do this, or it's God's will that this happened, or it's, it's God's will that this is accomplished, we've got to be cautious. We've got to be careful. Again, trying to prescribe God's will onto some matter that is occurring here in real time because we don't always know what God's will is for us in this specific moment. We can know what's good. We can know if it's Thanksgiving. We can know if it's, if it's service. We can know those broader things and those broader aspects. But should I take this job or should I stay in this job? You know, do we know at that very moment? Sometimes, well, the, the job may tell us, I guess, if it's a bad job and Christians don't need to be involved in it. I mean, that might be a clear sign. Hey, that's God's will. Don't go down that road. But it may not be that clear cut, that easy. Before we start ascribing God's will to things, we've got to be careful because we don't want to give God credit or responsibility for bad choices that we or others may uh, make in life. Waiting 15 years. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. And I think you can go back and look and say, you know, I think that was God's will that I was here. I myself can personally look back and it's not been 15 years yet. It's only been a little over eight. But I think it's God's will that I got a job in Montgomery, Alabama. I do. And I think it is because it allowed me to meet you. Allowed me to be a part of this congregation at Dalreda. And I think he's been able to hopefully use me in a way and in form and fashion here in this community and also in this church to help bring about good things. And I look in my life and I think, well, I think that's God's will. And I'm not going to 100% say, yes, it's God's will. But I think pretty close to that. It's God's will that I came to Montgomery, Alabama. I met my wife. Wouldn't have my children without it. And I say God's will, I think his providence watching over us. Now, again, that's the little will. That's the little matters. Why? Because those things really don't matter. Does it matter if I got married or not? No. And does it matter that I had Marley and Tinley? No. Not in the overall scheme of things. Because what matters is really the true will of God. And that is salvation is brought to man. 
that salvation will prevail, that we will be reunited, we will be reconciled with God in our lives. Now, real quickly, and I just kind of throw, throw, throw this in here, is what are, how can we know God's will? You know, a lot of us want to know, how, how are we able to, to know what God's will is? Well, I'll put a couple of ideas and thoughts on there. This is not Kackelman's prescription necessarily to knowing God's will, and it's not going to be anything that's definitive necessarily for you. But I think there's some really good, valid points. First of all, pray. Prayer, ask the Lord to help you make the right decision. Remember, if we ask in faith and in accordance with His will, we'll receive it. First John chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. There's also an aspect, I think, in, in accepting and knowing God's will of self-surrender. And the fact is that, that in our lives, we've got to put ourselves to the side, necessarily got to kick ourselves out of the picture and move toward looking after others and looking after God. We've got to search God's word because honestly, the only way we're going to know what God's will is his real will, the big will, the big picture, the overwhelming concepts of what God wants in our lives is what? To read his word. We've already talked about it in previous lessons. That's how God communicates with us is through his word. If you don't have the word, you don't have the will. Surround yourselves with godly counselors, I think, is a great advice. Those people, you see those scriptures there in Proverbs and also in Matthew talking about surrounding yourselves with those uh, who will give you wise counsel and advice. Be aware of circumstances and conditions. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 is a specific uh, point there where Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you, so that is not as common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond that which you are able to uh, deal with. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you will be able to endure it. There are sometimes open doors, maybe even an open window to climb out of, to follow and search after those things which are best. Uh, think about these things. I'll tell you, the overwhelming idea of how do you know God's will? Conform your will to his. That's the bottom line. If God's overwhelming umbrella of a huge big will in the sky is the fact that we move towards salvation, that we are reunited with him. The only way to get there, the only way to truly understand that will of him is to conform our will to his. I think that's how we can know God's will. Appreciate it. We'll pick up next lesson next week.